Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us where we are, even in the midst of sometimes our sheer unbelief, that you promise to hold us fast, that you promise to be ours forevermore. And Lord, help us to take hold of that promise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah, a wedding invitation with a response card. Most of us have seen one of these. Maybe you've signed and returned one. Nowadays, of course, this is all online, and likely as not, you were offered a set of canned responses and some boxes to tick. The first two here are exactly what you expect. Either gladly attend or regretfully decline. Two opposite emotions and two opposite responses, joy and excitement at the thought of attending the wedding, or regret knowing you'd like to but can't. But what if our response doesn't quite fit into those two choices? Maybe we need some more honest responses. What about this one? Resentfully attend. I'm going to come, but I don't really want to. Maybe I don't like the bride or the groom. Maybe I'll need to rearrange my entire schedule, and it's a lot of hassle. Possibly my family and the groom's family don't get on and are part of a decades-long family feud. Well, all kinds of reasons we'd rather not attend, but feel we can't say no. And then there's this one. <laughs> Enthusiastically decline. Maybe we want to snub the bride or groom who will be deeply upset that we're not coming. Or perhaps we'll add a trivial excuse why we won't be there. Sorry, I've got an Amazon delivery that day. <laughs> and then finally, this one. You won't bother sending in an RSVP, but you're going to turn up anyway. That, I think, is a passive-aggressive type of response and is a lot of embarrassment for the ushers, no doubt. Now, that's all a little tongue-in-cheek, and of course, we never dream of making any of those last three responses, would we? And mind you, we'd hopefully never design an RSVP card like that in the first place. Now, this isn't a million miles away from something that Jesus taught. This is Jesus' parable of the wedding feast in the Gospel of Luke and in Matthew. A man prepares a wedding feast and invites many guests. When the day of the wedding comes, he sends his servants out to tell them, it's all now ready, please come. And then the excuses begin. One says... I've just bought a field, I need to go and see it. Really, you bought a field without seeing it? Imagine saying, I can't come because I've just bought a house and I need to go and see it. You wouldn't do that, would you? It's a very lame excuse. The next one, I've just bought some oxen and I need to go and check them out. Again, really? Would you buy a car and then Go and check it over afterwards. I know you can buy online without seeing cars these days, but generally speaking, we like to see before we buy. Another lame excuse. Finally, I just got married. And obviously, if you just got married, you can't go to another wedding. It's obvious. He's busy with his wife. Can't come and share in your joy. Another lame and insulting excuse. In fact, all these excuses are really insulting. And in the Middle Eastern context in which this is set, 
it would be considered a particular insult to call off at the last minute without a very, very good reason. So none of these excuses are any good. It's quite common, though, for us to decide sometimes we're not going to do something or take notice of someone because of some excuse. Maybe we won't listen to someone's advice because we don't like them, or they've got some bad habit, one which we don't have, of course. Perhaps we know something about them that colors everything they say, something in their background, something about the kind of people they mix with, just anything, in fact, that rubs us up the wrong way. Nothing to do with what they're actually saying, of course. Now, we're all human and we all do this. We have excuses and these determine our responses. Excuse, so-and-so has some kind of quirk. Response, I avoid them at all costs. Nothing new in that, of course. And it's exactly what's happening here in our Gospel reading from Matthew. Jesus is pointing out that no matter how hard you try, you really just can't please some people. John has come, as Jesus said, neither eating or drinking, and yet they say he's got a demon. John the Baptist, as we know, is an ascetic. He eats wild honey and locusts. He dresses funny. He lives out in the desert, and he's a firebrand, a real fire and brimstone preacher. And many, of course, were inspired by his preaching and were baptized by him and turned to God. But many others dismissed him. Oh, he's possessed, he's crazy, something's gotten into him. But in reality, these are just excuses. I don't want to listen to what he says, so I'll find some reason to ignore him. Or maybe it's just that John is too much for them. All that shouting and those piercing eyes, that beard. Well, Jesus says, okay, what about me, the son of man? I'm nothing like John, outwardly at least. Surely you'll listen to me. But no. Jesus eats and drinks like everyone else. He attends dinner parties and weddings. Many, no doubt, whispered, why don't his disciples fast like John's disciples do? Surely a true prophet of God shouldn't be cavorting like this. Hence the excuse, yes, Jesus wasn't like John. Yes, some listened to him, became his disciples, but others looked on and sneered. He's a drunkard, a glutton. Oh, yes, I saw him knocking it back at that tax collector's house. Ah, yes, the second excuse and the second problem with Jesus, the kind of people he mixed with, the wrong kind, tax collectors and sinners. If he's really a prophet, he'd be more like John, wouldn't he? And we don't really like John. You don't see John living it up like that, do you? Well, tax collectors were the hated collaborators with the Roman Empire, lining their own pockets by taking more than the actual tax from the people. To freely mix with them is to fraternize with the enemy, Rome. So what is he doing? Doesn't he know what kind of people these are? Sinners who don't care about the law, people at the bottom of society, the marginalized, people outside of normal, respectable, polite society. Why is Jesus associating with them? Why should we listen to anything he says if this is the company he keeps? Excuse. Human to be sure, but excuse nonetheless. In fact, no matter what tune God plays, it seems, the people refuse to respond. And Jesus 
says this about them, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe or the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. This is Jesus' summary of what the people are like. Little children who refuse to join in, whether the game is weddings or funerals. No matter what it is, they've got an excuse. The one playing the pipe, flute, of course, here is Jesus. He's the, he's the one who came enjoying life, attending weddings, eating and drinking his fill, and he played the joyful tune of a coming kingdom. But they wouldn't dance. The dirge is John. He came a fiery prophet, living a hard and disciplined life. He played a lament, demanding repentance, but they wouldn't mourn with him. John was too holy, Jesus not holy enough. No matter what the expectations, neither lived up to them, regardless of what John or Jesus said. Many wouldn't listen because they'd already armored themselves with excuses, with expectations that could never be met. And those unmet expectations gave rise to resentment and anger and frustration, and the people stopped listening. No matter what tune is being played, they won't dance or sing along to it. The excuses are just there to make it look better. They are reasons, of course, excuses are reasons, but they excuse us, let us off the hook, so we don't have to listen anymore. But what about us today? Are our excuses in this generation any different? I don't think so. As with the wedding feast, we can find so many distractions to hand that excuse us from listening to Jesus and considering further his invitation to the kingdom. Modern life, it seems, is a veritable factory of more important things to do. But assuming we do put aside trivial excuses for not bothering, there could be real issues we have expectations about God, the church, Christianity, the Bible. Let's just look briefly at some of these. First off, you may expect Christians to be holy, possibly near perfect, uh, certainly on top of life, happy and full of faith 24-7. That's a common expectation, but I have to dash that at least in part. Uh, we're imperfect. We fail, we foul up. Nietzsche said of Christians they needed to look more redeemed if he was going to believe in their redeemer. You're probably expecting to see some redemption. People who are not like everybody else that are different. Maybe you know some Christians and you wait for them to slip up. Trust me, they will. But, and this is an important but, we hopefully know we are imperfect and we want to do something about it. We do want to be those patient, kind, generous, giving people you undoubtedly think we should be, and we should be. But Jesus said he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not to corral the nice, religious, pious people into congregations of the perfect. No. He came to open a clinic for sinners. To light a beacon to show the way home for those who are lost. To be bread for those who are hungry and living water for those who thirst. If your excuse is that we are not who we should be, then I would agree we are not, but we are being changed into the likeness of Jesus, be it sometimes ever so slowly. 
Or maybe you feel that Christians and church are far too holy for you. I'm just not good enough. I'm not worthy enough to join these holy people. And that's become your excuse. I wish I could have faith like that, but I can't. So that's an end of it. But if you're here this morning, did you notice a lot of perfection? Do you think anyone here is really good enough? Of course not. Christians are human and we err. We have broken bits, buttons you can push, egos you can bruise. It's all here. If your excuse is you're not worthy enough, I can assure you that you are. But you might be saying, okay, but what really gets my goat is the hypocrisy. You say one thing, you Christians, you do the opposite. You claim to have all the answers, but you have doubts. You claim to love, and yet church is not always a safe place. Two things to say. One is that Jesus hated hypocrisy. In fact, he slated the Pharisees for being holy on the outside, but not holy on the inside. He called them whitewashed tombs, looking ever so together and spiritual on the outside, but full of dead things on the inside. So that's one thing. And two, we are, but not as much as we should be, aware that yes, we can be hypocrites. The gap between our beliefs and our lives is often big, but we are works in progress. We're not what we once were. We pray this prayer in our services regularly, as we did earlier this morning. Forgive us what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be. That is a prayer that we may live out what we believe. It reminds me of that saying, we're not perfect, just forgiven. Of course, we're not just forgiven, for the second part of that prayer talks of new life, being made whole and having new meaning and direction. So if your excuse is the church is full of hypocrites, well, yes, we know. Once again, it's not how it should be. Yes, outwardly, we are jarringly different from what we are on the inside. But we have those words of Jesus ringing in our ears to put off the masks of hypocrisy, to be straightforward and honest. And if you're honest, maybe there's a little bit of the hypocrite in you too. Jesus chastised his generation for being unwilling to listen. Indeed, his frustration at them is expressed in Matthew's gospel later on in this phrase, you faithless and perverse people, how much longer must I put up with you? exasperated by their excuses and their ever-changing expectations which could never be met. He accused them of unbelief, stubbornly refusing to believe, no matter what is presented to them. And what was an unbelieving generation to do? They turned on John and Jesus. We won't dance to your tune, but you will dance to ours, the tune of hatred, resentment, anger, and pride. And so John is killed by King Herod and Jesus dies on the cross. Now, that was not something the disciples expected at all. Jesus was not supposed to die like that. Maybe leading an insurrection against Rome, but definitely not the death of a common criminal, for goodness sake. Jesus, it seemed, did not meet anyone's expectations in death as in life. But if his death confounded expectations in bringing to an end what was supposed to end in glory, it confounded expectations in another way too. We might think that Jesus washed his hands of that excuse-making generation, but no, indeed quite the reverse. We find him arms outstretched to the 
east and the west, praying this prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do in the blindness of their unbelief. They still fail to get it. And yet Jesus prays forgiveness. This is a love that never stops giving. By coming alongside those that others shoved to the margins, Jesus indicated just what kind of love this was, a love that was so wide it knew no boundaries, a love so deep there were no depths to which it was not prepared to go. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's the Romans, the Jewish religious leaders. That's the crowds during for his blood and friends. That's you and me too. That's a prayer that will be answered. Could be answered for you this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time. There is no last time. This morning I invite you to think on that. For there is nowhere you can have been, nothing you can have done or said that can deter Christ in his loving pursuit of you. No heart so stubborn that it is not loved by him. For the cross shows just how deep that love is. A love that will meet us no matter what the cost. And it shows us how deep our resistance to that love goes. It reveals our true face, our sinful, selfish, hypocritical face, and yet at the same time, the true face of God in the love of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus bids us come, come to the feast that is the kingdom of God. You may be reluctant, but come, tick the box to reluctantly attend. C.S. Lewis once called himself the most reluctant convert in all England, and God loves a challenge. You may be uncertain, but come, tick the I'm not sure about this, but I'd like to know more box. Indeed, there is an entire course set up specially for you. It's called Alpha. To talk to someone afterwards if that sounds right for you. You can still join in. Maybe you know this is for you. You want to take that gladly attend box and give it a really huge tick. Well, please come. Please come forward for prayer after communion. Here on my left, your right, and someone will pray for you to start on that journey. Amen. I invite you to stand if you're able, and let's just wait for a few moments on the Lord. Feel free to pray along with me in your heart this simple prayer, whether for the first time or the hundredth time. Lord, I want to know you more. I have been so far away and I want to come home. I want to put aside all my excuses and my determination to go my own way. I am truly sorry and turn from all of that to the embrace of your wonderful love and the freedom it brings. Amen. Amen.